Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that this thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than him, are we? And at the heart of what he's talking about, and one of the unique features of this, which we won't do this morning, is that the, he actually reverses the order that we traditionally think about the bread and the cup. We usually we take the bread, that's how you have it written in the Gospels. You have the whole element of taking the bread and then the, the wine or the drink, and it becomes typical to think of it that way. But here he actually verbalizes it differently. He talks about the cup first and then the bread. It really doesn't make too much difference. The issue is, is that as we take this cup, it really becomes a symbolic element of being sharers in Christ. And, and yet the problem that Israel had all the way through biblical history is that they tend to have other things that were idols in their life. In fact, when Joshua gave the great command about them moving forward with God, he, the, the admonition was put away your idols. There was kind of an assumption that they already had idols. It was kind of the baggage from Egypt. And there's always things that God's people unfortunately struggle with that they, it comes under the label, I just can't live without it. You know, our idols aren't little wooden figures and those kinds of things, and we don't actually take animal sacrifices. But I want you to think of an idol as something that you feel you can't live without. Anything that you can't say no to is an idol. And at the heart of the Christian life, the one person who had to have sole authority over our life and the direction it goes is God himself. For some of us, it's TV. Can't go home without kind of medicating ourselves by watching two or three hours or four hours of television. For others, it's social media. For others, it may be another hobby or, or something along the lines that we're absolutely convinced, even though we'd say, oh, I could give it up if the Lord actually asked me to. I got news for you, you already did. And so at the heart of this idea of taking communion is really pledging our allegiance back to Christ is saying that he's my Lord and master. And, and as part of that journey, I want you to say is there's things in my life that are cluttering up my relationship with Christ. Because he calls us to be a holy people. He calls us to, to live in a fashion that demonstrates the powers from Christ and not ourselves. And so as we think on these, I wanna encourage you to uh, take the wafer. And as we consider that to uh, Think about just the, the reality of his sacrifice and all that he gave up and the suffering he went through. Not so us to have us sort of adopt Jesus as a self-help program, but in a sense to surrender fully to him. Because we surrender to a person, not necessarily to a ritual. We, don't, we surrender to the person of Christ who indwells us through the power of the presence of the Spirit. So I'm gonna invite you to take the wafer and to reflect on what Christ did and sacrifice and eat it together.
One of the unsettling comments in this verse is verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You know, in the message this morning that we're going to launch into in a minute, it's really easy for us to give ourselves permission over certain sins that are kind of accepted, acceptable stuff. Uh, We'll have fun with it a little bit in the message, but sometimes we've gotten so used to giving ourselves permission over habitual sins or other kinds of things that we just kind of have given up because we don't know how to deal with them. And the danger here on the other side of the coin is that we may, we're provoking the Lord if we're not careful. This isn't just kind of words on a page, it's just not semantics, it's we serve a living God who cares deeply about our life and our journey, and we don't want to be spitting in his face at the same time we're trying to acknowledge his lordship. And so at the heart of this is a deep examination of our own hearts to say, Lord, expose those things even in my life that I'm not aware of that I am really holding up as an idol, as a God, as something that I can't live without, and it's really between, it, it comes between me and my relationship with you. And so as we take the cup, I'm gonna invite you to uh, consider, how's your walk with the Lord? What is our announcement of our allegiance to him say about the things that affect our life Monday through Saturday? Take the cup and drink it together. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed a God who is magnificent in all of your glory. Words would escape us to see you face to face. In fact, we are reminded in the scriptures that anyone who saw even a glimmer of the likeness of the glory of God usually fell before you like dead people, so overwhelmed by the absolute majesty and purity and holy and righteousness of your presence that unveiled reflection of the creator of all things. And Father, we we call you Father because you have seen the desperate plight of our life that no human being is right in your eyes, that it is only through the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus, that we have any opportunity to have a right standing with you. And yet it's conditioned on the reality that we would exercise faith in Christ. Jesus said in himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And yet, Father, the the gospel is so significant, not just to enter into your family, but for every day the way we live. And often it's the one thing that often escapes the way we think. And I pray that we would realize in the ebb and flow of everyday life that the gospel is as critical for us now as believers, regardless of how many years we've walked with you, as it was from the first day that we started. And so we pray that we will examine our own hearts and we would rid ourselves of the idols that plague our life or that we would allow you to surgically remove those things in our life that we are now unable to deal with because we have couched them so long in our own heart and spirit. So Father, we ask for your cleansing, your presence. Father, may you continue to change us and conform us into the image of your Son. And for this, we are eternally grateful. And for all this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 13, we are still, I would say this week, laying one of the foundations for understanding. Next week it's really going to get interesting. We'll have a little fun today, but um, 
uh, I it's kind of odd as I was putting this message together because there were some things about U.S. politics that I'm going to share with you, like I know more than you do, but anyway, um, you'll just have to bear with it as we sort of touch on these things. But I, I think in the, in the ebb and scope of things, we are told uh, and had discussions all through the last year about whether we have faith to stand against government or that we're fearing government. I believe this passage says that we have to have both faith towards government, and at least in terms of the context of this text, is that we ought to fear government. Not in a negative sense, but the text will be clear, is that if we are ones that are committed to being, as I mentioned last week, the best citizens possible, we have nothing to fear. But even believers who decide they're going to make up their own rules may have something to fear about. And so the, the text that we're in is Romans 13, just 3 and 4 today, and then we'll step into a three-part series on verse 5, believe it or not. <clears throat> we could go slower if you'd like to, but anyway, that's... <laughs> but starting in verse 3, Paul continues this argument <clears throat> where he simply says, For rulers are not a terror or fear to good conduct, but to bad. When you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good. I, I didn't read that correctly. Let me do that again. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries on God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I know that politics is always a fairly heated discussion, and we're not going to spend lots of times debating all the philosophical elements of one particular party over another. But there's some things at times that I think we lose sight of because we get so wrapped up in the politics of life, we forget to understand that God actually has a purpose for government. Some of it is pretty common sense. Some of it we lose sight of in the midst of trying to even do what's right. But I want to begin by uh, just kind of outlining some different things about government. First of all, the purpose of government. Uh, this obviously is a super hyper Reader's Digest version of it. There's a lot of other things that I'm sure many of you could add to the discussion, but we're dealing with the absolute bare essentials in terms of understanding it. Really, there's, in, in a sense, four things that are happening. I read one article that said five, another one said three. You can couch it any way that you want. One is governance, the authority to rule over a group of people, over a, a land, a people, a citizenship that uh, recognizes them as a point of authority. The second one is the idea of legislation, the idea of making laws to govern that group of people. You can't have people just making up their own rules and regulations, otherwise you, you, you default to tribal uh, competition and conflict if you just let everyone do it. Uh, the third one is judicial, the idea of protecting the people of that citizenry uh, or punishing those who are not willing to conform to the, the norms or the laws of that particular land. And then the last one is to protect the national interest, to, to come to the aid of, to respond to the, its citizenry when it is in crisis or conflict, when it is uh, dealing with social programs, infrastructure, those kinds of things. <clears throat> Those are some of the essential things that a government looks after. And, and to some degree, it doesn't matter whether you're here or other parts of the world, there's some certain, some kinds of common responsibilities that they have. <clears throat> Obviously, it looks different depending on where you're going, but it's not a new concept. Uh, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'm going to have to get someone to get me some water. I'm kind of breathing down the wrong kind of 
wine this morning, I guess. But anyway, <coughs> I should have ate more of that plastic bread. That would have helped so soak it up, I guess. <laughs> In any event, bear with me as I struggle through. When you go back to 1 Samuel 8, you remember the people of God kind of rejected God's direct rule over them, and their basic clarion call was, we want a king like all the other nations, which sounds like a ridiculous concept. How is it that God's people want to be ruled like all the other nations? Why do we have idols in our life that rule over our life? That sounds just as ridiculous. Because at the core of this, it doesn't matter whether it's an idol in my own personal life that no one knows about or whether it's Israel calling to say, we want a king like all the other nations because that looks impressive what they do. Man, they look strong. They look powerful. Man, they've got things put together over there. And so they come up with this and they get Saul as their king. God appointed him, but they're told in this there are certain things that a king's gonna be able to do. He can impose taxes to pay his servants. Verse 15, they can take a host of young people to serve and work for the king. And that's what they do. In any kind of government, they basically recruit a whole bunch of individuals. Thank you. To serve the interests of the king and the government as well as the citizenry. And, and so they, they, they take a host of them, they serve him. It's kind of like creating agencies to look after different things. When Joseph was in uh, Egypt, he l- watched over the whole area, the, the, all of Egypt. He was only, what, second in command. But they, had a, they, they were headed for a famine, so he put in this whole uh, conservation program to help preserve food and provide for the people. The government has a right and, and a responsibility to be working to protect and to provide for its people. <clears throat> They can tax their resources. The people of Israel were told that the king's gonna be able to tax them. I call it a sales tax, but they will become his servants. And as you walk through the list, it gets longer and longer. They can take the best of the fields. They can take all the resources and give it. It's kind of the perks of government work, is that they get things that a lot of other people don't because they're dedicating their self to serve the people of that particular nation. The list goes on, and there's a number of things we could talk about it, but even back in, in biblical times in 1 Samuel, we know that there's all kinds of governments that were set up, and even if we took the time, we would look at essentially when God established Moses as sort of their king or president of, of Israel, he gave them a law and a constitution that they were to operate by, and it was unique in the sense that everything was pretty coherent from top to bottom that the national religion, as it were, was the, uh, the religion of the place was the national religion, and God was at the forefront of that. But the, the other prerogatives of government is that they are to protect their citizens in time of war. If someone comes to threaten them, then they have a responsibility to put something together that's going to defend them. In, in our particular country, it was conscription. Now, not everybody's a big fan of conscription, but they have done it in the United States, it's also known as the draft, and they've done it in six different conflicts over time. It was the American Revolution War, which may be a little farther past than some of you can remember, the American Civil War, World War I and World War II, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And all of those, of course, brings its own turmoil because people, when the government acts to do something that in the big picture looks perfectly reasonable, There's people who question both the methods and why of why they're doing those things. But a government has the prerogatives to do those things. We see it even uh, in Scripture. 
the, the, now they call it Selective Training and Service Act, uh, and the military back, I believe it was in 73, went back to a totally volunteer uh, military, but the idea of conscription still is on the back burner. If they ever ran into a crisis, they could start drafting people again uh, in that context. But the other side of it is the government's supposed to come to the aid of its citizenry. And so if you have natural disasters, as we have experienced, uh, whether it's storms or floods, whether it's pandemics or whatever, the government, in a sense, has a responsibility not to just idly sit there, but to respond. Of course, that in itself raises all kinds of questions as to the, why is the government doing what's, well, it's got a bigger picture than my block and your block. And so they act in ways that often is easy to criticize, but I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. They have an entire nation that they have to respond to. And so it'll bring its own controversy in terms of what's doing, going on. But it also raises questions. Back in, I think it was back in May, I found the one stat, I have, didn't have time to update it, but nine states were seeking $36 billion in federal aid just on unemployment alone. And then it, of course, raises the question about, well, how involved should government get in things? And we don't want to go there today in the sense that we don't have time to explore all those avenues, or we won't get through Romans, like, till 2080. <laughs> but you have to, we have to remember, they have a responsibility to their people, to their citizens, that they have to act when things happen. They may not always do it the way we would like to, but there's a certain responsibility that they have. The other elements of this is that as you begin to walk through this, what Paul's trying to do is to say, listen, there's a, there's a faith aspect for God's people that have to recognize that the, as much as even the Jews did back then, and I think this is a little bit why he finishes chapter 12 with overcome evil with good, is it had been very easy for the Jews and God's people to picture the Roman Empire, even the local governing authorities, as evil. They don't share the same values, they don't uh, promote the same programs, they don't have the same morality, and yet Paul still comes back and says, I need you to submit yourselves to the authorities in the big picture things that are going on. And he's going to talk about those as we go. But we also have to remember the perspective from God's perspective. And the one incident that I wanted you to see is John 19. You remember when Jesus was before Pilate, he makes this statement, and I suspect that a lot of people kind of fly through this and don't pay much attention to it. But Pilate says to him, you will, uh, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, he said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. The word above, you could say, well, that was from the Romans or someone higher up on him. It's exactly the same word used in John 3 when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born from above. Nicodemus confuses, say, wait, I'm supposed to be born a second time in my mother's womb? Goes through that kind of rigmarole. And Jesus then refers to that as being born of the Spirit, the, the work of the Spirit of God. So I believe what he's saying here is that if it wasn't for my heavenly Father, for God himself, whether you think of it very circumstantially, at this particular time, in this particular moment, God is the one who has allowed you to have this perspective because he's got a redemptive program that, that includes this process and you wouldn't have this authority at all unless God permitted it. And, and so even under the most difficult crucible that Jesus was facing, as horrific as the evil he was going to experience, he still points out, Pilate, you would never have that position unless my father would have granted it to you. That's not always our attitude. 
That's not always our perspective. And so as we work through it, it becomes a challenge for us to understand. It doesn't mean that God sanctions every government and the way they do things and their morality, but we've already seen in passages like Psalm 2 and others that, that God is the one who has his fingerprints on the ebb and flow of history and the nations that rise and fall. We could talk about Daniel who made this great prophetic uh, prophecy of, of the figure of uh, Nebuchadnezzar who he was, he was the head and then there's other kingdoms that would follow. And with great predictability, God looked forward and was announcing that there's certain rise and falls of kingdoms that are going to come and, and God has his fingerprints on that. Now how God allows mankind to have the kind of freedom to act out of even out of his own evil and he still puts boundaries around that, I, that's... That's for God to answer. I'm not quite sure how, how he pulls all that off, but he does. And, and so as we begin to look at the elements of this, there's a certain faith perspective that we have to have that, that governments are there because God permits them or orchestrates them there for a purpose. Of course, there's practical ways for us to do it. The next statement he makes back in 1 and 2 is that we have to be subject to all the governing authorities. And next week as we step from this particular text and look at a couple of others, the, literally means those ongoing authorities that we are under. And I don't believe that it's just limited to the idea of our federal government. I think it could talk about local governments, but it also talks about other institutions that have regular authority. If you have a job with some company, then you are literally place yourself under an authority that will conduct itself in certain ways, and then you're gonna find yourself kind of struggling at times with what does it mean to be a faithful employee and yet do what's right? Our education system is things that we drop into, whether it's lower education or higher education, but those are authorities that we choose to be part of, and so they have certain guidelines and rules. And so we'll step into those as we go. But the idea here is that, that the government is God's servant and he is carrying out his for the good of the people. Otherwise, what you get to is kind of like the old movie, The Gangs of New York. Back in 18, late 1800s, there was, uh, they had sort of their own little ethnic group, happened to be the Catholics and the Protestants, but there was some pretty nasty stuff that went on there because they were ruling their own territory, trying to gain power and control, and they had their own ways of executing justice, and it used to be on the other guy. And so if you don't have a, sense of a centralized type government, then you're reduced to either tribal governance or you're back into gang warfare. And so the problem is they are servants to help keep order. I realized there was a clarion call at one point to defund the police. I didn't hear any options to it. That was the biggest problem. If you're going to defund the police, what are you going to put in its place? Well, usually when you pull something out like that, if you don't replace it with something, well, you kind of know where that goes. It just turns into flat-out anarchy. And so there, there's, there's a reason why the government is in place. It's for our good. And, and so the, as we begin to look at this, I want to draw you back to what Paul said in 1 Timothy. I think if you want a biblical approach, a faith approach to government, this is it. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I think Paul gives us a biblical model of what good government will do. 
They'll provide a place of peace and freedom so their citizens can operate and, and engage life in a peaceful and meaningful way. I, uh, I, in my ministry life, I've had conversations with people, and, and Christians kind of go from one extreme to the other. I've had the, some Christians going like, you know, what we need around here is a good persecution. And I go, what? What do you mean we need a good persecution? Well, their, their thing isn't, you know, we all know that crisis tends to help expose the vulnerability of our own life, and so there's lots of people uh, who find themselves life is fine until they hit a massive crisis and then they lose all hope about what's going on. They either hate God or they start searching for God because they have no hope. Uh, Christians who kind of get into the mode of, of we need a good persecution, their thought is usually we've got to sort of strip out the dead wood out of the church. It's always a bit of a precarious statement. I, I, usually the question I ask is, well, okay, how do you know you wouldn't be one of them? And they go, I wouldn't do that. You know, it's the old Peter triumph call. You know, I'm not going to deny you. Wham! And off he goes, down, right down the tubes over the servant girl standing at the fire pit. I mean, the, but, what, but I, what I want you to notice here in this whole process is that in 1 Timothy, he says the reason we have this kind of faith and pray for our kings and our leaders and those kind of things is because he says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And he sort of hinges this then to the next idea, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And while we as Christians say, well, it's, it's going to take a disaster to get people's attention to respond to the gospel, I think this prayer says we ought to be praying for peace and freedom for us to engage people. with the, This is the best kind of scenario for the gospel to flourish. I mean, certainly it's true that the gospel will flourish in places around the world where there's persecution and underground church and all those kind of things, but if we want to wish that for ourselves just because we think the gospel will flourish, that's either a deep confession or we have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, it's easy to stand at a distance and say, wow, the gospel's going great over there, but you and I would never be able to tolerate what those people are going through. We've been living in the lap of luxury way too long. We would be decimated. And so as, as I believe this is kind of the faith piece that we have to have, is pray for our kings and our leaders. Pray that God will give us an environment through their leadership that will bring peace and harmony and whatever level we can get that to. And often when it's not there, then you get all this turmoil going on. But then it says that the governing authorities are God's avengers. They're the ones sort of with the big stick, the discipline. I mean, if, if you want gang warfare, then you just let people do whatever they want. But they're the ones that are supposed to execute justice. And that's why we have a whole legal system. That's why we have courts. Is it perfect? No, it'll never be perfect. No human government ever will. But if you don't have it, then people will be left to their own devices. And so this is why God's word says that they're, and they're to deal with people. If you, if you conduct yourselves in a good manner, then you don't have anything to worry about. If you're going to do bad stuff, you're going to pay for it. And we know that every level of every institute we have has people in it that try to exploit the system for their own advantage. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's not just in a couple of places the places that we're not involved in and we don't like, it's in every place that we, we have institutional. 
We have any kind of authority structure. And so the, the idea of laws and rights become an integral part of this whole process. So let me sort of touch on that because next week when we step into the verse five, this will play a role into how we think about it. In our particular environment, we have things like rights and laws, and there's a difference between the two. Uh, for instance, the United States Constitution is founded on the principle that all Americans have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But laws is a rule of conduct with binding legal force and effect which um, is recognized, embraced by a government or a controlling authority. So we have laws and that we have rights. Um, I was, uh, got this from uh, just one of the legal firms on, on, uh, online and was kind of working through it, so I wanted to remind you of some of the common federal laws that we have. One is immigration. Now, I don't care whether you think it's in good shape or bad shape. Everyone's gonna have an opinion about that, right? Uh, I, I, when it comes to immigration, the only sort of niche I have is and I think Grant was in the same position, we paid like three grand to do this legally. It, it, it kind of gets my attention a little bit when it's kind of like, well, you just walk in and do whatever you want. That's, you know, it kind of you know, gets my attention a little bit. And, and, and so we all have feelings about those things. Bankruptcy is part of the federal laws that deal with reduction or elimination of debt. Whether you made a good decision or a bad one, there's times that people find reprieve from their disaster, whatever, whether it's self-inflicted or whether it's something else. Social security is one of making provisions for the, our aging population and to make sure that they're looked after and cared for. Now, we could go back 4,000 years and say, just let the family look after them. I mean, so then it gets down to the question of how much should government be involved, but we don't have time for that, you get it, right? So then you deal with anti-discrimination civil rights. Oh, that's one that's probably kind of forefront these days, isn't it? And so there's supposed to be federal laws that deal with this whole idea of discrimination. And the laws can look perfectly fine. It's how people carry them out. But laws can be changed and amended. That's a lot about our whole political system is there's opportunity for people to speak into that. Very few people do but that's available for us. State and federal taxes, yeah, we all know about that. I don't even bring it up, but anyway. Uh, national minimum drinking age, it's a federal law. Transportation, they have a responsibility for our, our transportation infrastructure and how people travel between states. There's, they've got a responsibility. But rights are a little bit different. And this is kind of where the rub is. The rights are freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press, Freedom to gather or assemble in public places, right to bear arms, and right to process. Now, obviously, one of the things that has been the biggest rub over the last year and a half is law versus rights. Because we think some of the laws or the choices or the, the, the statements that our leaders are making are infringing on our rights, so then we react to that. And yet, they have a responsibility, some prerogatives about how do we care for all these people? And... I'm gonna guess that you get different states reacting differently to different things. How do you make them all happy? You don't. That is sheer impossible. I'm in ministry, I don't make everybody happy. That's super dangerous territory you're treading on everybody. 
We will pray for you and uh, <laughs> I got other things I could say about that, but I just won't. But when we step into the messages next week, that's where we're going to feel the tension when it comes to the idea of, of rights and freedoms. Now, we're masters of rights. We, we, laws, we, we're bothered by too at times, but those are the things that keep everything, what you might say from a, a national base, somewhat sane, even though we see the weakness in it. And so as we begin to, to come and work through this, and we, especially when we step into next week, we're going to see the tension between this and how Christians should act in the midst when those things clash. But I thought I'd have some fun this morning just to kind of say, we've got to remind ourselves that we all give ourselves permission to break certain laws all the time. I went to one website that had nine laws that we all break all the time. Two of them I had to take out because they were really vulgar. But anyway... But there's laws that we break all the down. For instance, throwing out an old tenant's junk mail. You ever happen that you get someone, we still get mail from the previous person who owned our house once in a while, and you kind of look at it and go, what do I do with this? Well, you know what you do with it. I didn't say that, I didn't say, I, like I handed it off to where it's supposed to go is what I said. <laughs> right, whoever's watching out there, that's exactly what I did, right? Right? But, but you and I know, even though it's not our fault, we get this stuff, and to tamper or destroy someone else's mail is a federal crime, right? Well, if that doesn't surprise you, if you get caught doing it, the penalty could be as much as $250,000 fine and a five-year stint in federal prison. That'll make you think twice before throwing that mail out, won't it? The, uh, the, the other one is gambling. Uh, that was kind of an interesting, laws on gambling vary obviously from state to state and it's becoming much more accepted, but, and when this was written, uh, the basic statement is there's a good chance you're breaking them. Have you ever participated in a fantasy football league at the office or had the boys over for a cash poker game? That was his statement. And he was going, do you know you're breaking the law when you do that? Someone's going to say, no we're not, we're just having fun. Uh, of course. But that he goes on to explain, uh, they probably wouldn't bother with this, but it's a federal crime to like, gamble if it's not permissive. I, I actually found uh, federal laws governing bingo. It was ridiculously long. I couldn't believe it. It was like two pages long on bingo. Did you know that when it comes to bingo, bingo numbers with the letter B may only contain numbers 1 through 15? That's a law. You guys really take your bingo seriously down here, don't you? I'm kind of like, I have no idea what to do with that. The letter I can only contain numbers 16 through 30. So don't change the game or you're going to be in serious federal trouble. Here's one that's even better than the rest of the two. And that is, there's laws against owning a Sharpie. No, I, you know the, the permanent marker thing that you do stuff with? Uh, let, me, let me read you the, the frame of this. This happened, actually happened in an Oklahoma middle school uh, back in 2013, I believe. Um, the, the statement had a lot of editorial comments like, our schools today have completely lost their minds. Well, if they did back then, they're really losing it now. But 
There was a 13-year-old boy who was arrested in an Oklahoma City middle school for, of all things, possessing a Sharpie. It wasn't a gun, a knife, drugs, anything else, but possessing a Sharpie. Apparently, uh, he was found out by one of the teachers, a 50-year-old educator that was in there, and uh, her name was, well, whatever her name was, <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter, but she was 50-year-olds, uh, found that he was writing with a Sharpie, and he was writing on paper, and it was leaking through on the desk, and she asked for it, and he wouldn't give it to her. So she made a citizen's arrest and actually called the police, and they actually came and arrested him and took him to juvenile detention for owning a Sharpie. Now, the reason for it, you're kind of going like, who, what in the world is that law? Well, they said for minors, and at that particular time, minors couldn't have Sharpies because they were sometimes used for graffitiing walls and stuff in public areas, so they outlawed them for minors. Now, there's a few other choice things that they say about what's going on here, but it's, it, it shows you that, that you could be breaking laws and not even know it, and we get really comfortable with that. The last several is, for instance, tax evasion. He made a point to say that people who are self-employed are the ones who are most guilty of this because they tend to over-claim over and under-report uh, under uh, wages and things that they go through. For some, it's speeding. Break the law every day when you're going somewhere, everybody else is going 85, so 75 isn't really bad at all. Of course, if you've got a person and everyone's going 85 miles an hour and you've got someone going the speed limit, they're likely to cause the accident, not everybody else. But, believe it or not, I mean, this may be news to you, but actually break, going faster than the posted speed limit is breaking the law. I know for some of you that probably never entered your thoughts, but anyway, that's, that's, that's what it is. And when the police officer pulls you over, it's always interesting. You ever seen those shows where they have people giving excuses why they were breaking the law? Those are hysterical. It, I mean, it's just, it's embarrassing that people would actually come up with some of the things they do. It's like, you know, I can't repeat any of them right now, but it's, it's crazy. And then, of course, digital piracy, copying stuff off the web and using it and claiming it as your own. There, there's lots of ways that at times that the government has a right to persecute people who break those laws. And the reason is, is it often does harm to other people. You end up robbing other individuals of, of things, and there's identity theft and a host of other things that we deal with in life. But I, I want to encourage you to think about the ideas, is we have to have a faith response to understand that God has governments in, in place as his servants, as those who will help keep order and peace. And we ought to be praying for our leaders and our government for all kinds of things, but certainly for the reality that they can create an environment where we can live, he's obviously speaking very personally, where we can live godly lives. And we can, they can be dignified and we're not dealing with, you know, we're dealing with all the cultural wars that really are decimating and eating the heart out of our, our nation. So they're struggling trying to figure this out, for sure. And for most of us, you'd say, well, they're part of the problem. But let me try to suggest it to you this way. Is there any time in your lifetime and mine where the gospel has more of an opportunity to make a difference than right now? This isn't a time for us to hide in our homes. This isn't the time to, to, to apologize for our faith. As we see a world that's breaking down around us, we need to be on our knees praying and we need to be on our feet proclaiming the only hope that humanity has.
I wish I could make up a law that would say, <laughs> I'm, I'm being really facetious here, don't come back next Sunday unless you've shared the gospel with two people. I'm not going to do that. You know that, right? But sometimes we get, we get so concerned about our personal rights and the laws that we want to protect us and we spend so much time entangled in that that we've lost sight of the great mission of eternity. And whether these other people break laws or get away with things, it really annoys us when people do those things. How about to, to give us a compassion and a love for people who they have no other way to operate. They, they don't have a God who loves them, who sacrificed his son on a cross, which was the most unfair, horrific evil that you might ever see from a human perspective and especially from a divine perspective, and yet he did it for you and I. And, and so part of the message here is that we got to wake up and realize that God's put us in this broken world on purpose, at this place, at this time, for this mission. Don't get distracted. Keep focused. Be on your knees. But we need to share the gospel of Jesus. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we need to have a faith response to government. We're, we're told in the big scope of life that they're there in many ways, literally what the text says, for our good. And it's because of them that we can have an environment, especially in this nation, that we have the freedoms and the rights that we do. It certainly isn't true for other parts of the world. And so we get entangled in the reality of what is it that we're fighting for. How do we speak into our world and yet not compromise the gospel at the same time? How do we be engaged in the real elements of our communities and do it in a meaningful way that both not only demonstrates that we can be the best citizens possible, but we're also speaking into the difficult issues of life that we don't have to roll over for? Father, if anything for us, let it begin on our knees as we pray for our leaders we pray for our country, but Father, help it to engage our feet as we communicate the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that both our faith and our fear will honor you. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.